This is Top Floor, episode 90. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 90. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. I'm back with Stephanie Smith, CEO and digital matriarch of Cogwheel Marketing, learning more about Cogwheel Analytics, the business intelligence tool she developed for hotel management companies and ownership groups. I know, Stephanie, that our listeners have heard of BI tools like the Star Report. Can you explain what types of data Cogwheel Analytics provides? Cogwheel Analytics is designed to be a Star Report, but for your digital marketing. Since the dawn of time, all of our digital marketing data has been compared against the hotel's own data. If you want to look at the website revenue, you're comparing it to yourself year over year, month over month. But that data in and of itself is silos. How do we start looking at that data in a bigger way to make sense of what's good and what's bad and understand the true online story of that particular hotel? What types of data does Cogwheel Analytics provide? For any franchise or of multiple brands, someone that's working in digital marketing is aggregating data, copying, pasting, creating massive pivot tables from upwards of 20 different sources. Functionally, our reporting tool allows people to save time. So they're not doing that. They're spending time strategizing and action planning against the data instead of creating the report. We've mapped out data points for all the major brands so that you can see your channel mix, visit some revenue you get, be able to identify trends there, and also paid media, incorporating Cody data, Expedia data, Google data, so you can get a total online presence view of where your marketing dollars went and what the performance of all those different initiatives have been. How does having all of that information in one place help a company's commercial team? It allows for that real-time discussion. If you're sitting in a revenue strategy meeting, you have that data available at your fingertips to say, this is what's happening and this is what we should be doing to either correct that action or change or shift that strategy. Welcome to the show. Peter Ricci is that rare breed of academic who has worked in the field he teaches almost the entire time he's been in the classroom. After getting his start as a teen in John Carlone's Fort Lauderdale Fine Dining Restaurant Empire. Peter studied sociology at the University of Florida with plans to go to law school. After a couple of dreadful months reading dreadful cases, Peter headed back to the University of Florida for a recreation studies master's and a life in tourism. Peter followed up a stint at the Greater Miami Convention and Visitors Bureau with more than a decade in the hotel business before settling down as the director of the Hospitality and Tourism Management Program at Florida Atlantic University. Dr. Ricci became a household name in the hospitality industry when he offered a free online hospitality certificate during the pandemic for which about 
thousand people signed up. Today, Peter and I are going to talk about the state of hospitality programs and the role of academia in our industry. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and random strangers with burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Thaisa. And here is what Thaisa has to say. I am planning to do permanent task force for a few years to get exposure to more hotel types. And Thaisa lists out those types, uh, select service, resort, full service, etc. Faster than I could as a full-time general manager. What is the first thing I should do when I start each new GM assignment on task force? So I think this is going to ring familiar to you, Peter, because you did something a little bit like this in your career. What is your advice for Thaisa? Well, my first point of advice for anyone going into that situation is to meet everyone. And don't make any rash, knee-jerk decisions based on your own experience. Um, we'll all go in like, you know, my decade plus in hotels was actually fixing broken hotels or opening new ones. So I was kind of a permanent task force within the management companies I work for. And I saw a lot of failures by those who really knew how to manage a great hotel but they would go in, spend a couple of days, read what was there, and then make sweeping changes before they spent time meeting everyone. I think that is amazing advice. I totally agree. So Peter, you started in restaurants at about age 14 as a dishwasher and a busser. If you had to, could you still do that job today? Oh, definitely. Um, when I was a GM, I'd run around and still do everything because you never want to lose touch. But of course, I'm far older now and I have a bad back, so I couldn't <laughs> do it for long, but I definitely could do it. It's uh, the technology's changed, the dishware system and the cycle. It's kind of fascinating. So I'd always go back to the house to see what was going on. But as a GM, I made sure that I pretty much could do everything except the really technical engineering stuff or the IT stuff, because that's out of my league, but at least have the basic understanding of what the person in that role does. So doing dishes, I don't like to do them at home, but I enjoyed that job. <laughs> Why was it a valuable part of your journey in hospitality? You know, you look back and you, you say, why, why? I mean, that initial role had so much meaning for me later on because it was announced on the high school PA system. I just was looking for a job. It was close to the house. My dad could drop me off. And in three months, I got promoted to busser. So the reason it has meaning for me is I had a great leader and I learned who and what makes a restaurant successful. Her name was Lucy, the GM. I'll never forget her. I was super excited because I learned that working hard and not missing shifts and doing your job well and being nice to others leads to promotion because I got promotion really on. And then one day I was um, dumping food 
in a trash can and the plate broke in my hand and I sliced my thumb and needed about 25 stitches. And I remember how quickly the GM and the team got me to the hospital, called my parents, everything. So there was a level of family that years later, I tried to always treat my staff the same. But you don't know it at 14, 15 years old, what you're going through. But I, you know how certain things in life, you can see the memory in your mind clear. I remember Lucy walking in at around 1 a.m. after a super busy New Year's Eve to tell me I was getting promoted to busser. And I remember how that felt still all that time later. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. After serving as an adjunct professor for many years, so you're doing all these fixings and then same time you're teaching classes, you got your doctorate in 2005. What precipitated your decision to teach full-time? You know, what's interesting is I've always had great mentors that were like teachers and in my undergrad in sociology, I took an introduction to tourism class. And of course, I aced it. It was my love. I should have known well before I attempted law school that hospitality was my life calling. I thought I wanted to be a travel attorney. So I wound up back in graduate school almost immediately because I didn't know what to do with myself after leaving the semester at Georgia State for law school. And it was even worse than the cases. They had messed up my financial aid. It was their first year in operation. It was a big debacle. So I said, well, I might as well do my master's in the meantime. Recreational studies, which includes tourism, parks, all that at UF is the closest thing to tourism. So I wound up in there and I realized that the lady who taught me the intro to tourism class was an adjunct faculty member. I didn't know what that meant. So she told me I work for the airline full time and I teach one class a semester and it keeps me involved with young people and it helps me recruit. And I never forgot that. And right after my master's, um, I had a short job at sea as an event planner. And then I wound up at the Greater Miami Convention and Visitors Bureau. I want to say like 1990 to 1994. And my first six months there, the president got a call from Nova University, which is now Nova Southeastern University here in South Florida. And they wanted an adjunct faculty member for destination marketing. And the dean told the president of the CBB, it has to be someone with a master's. Well, in that time, there were not a lot of people who had a master's in hospitality because it just wasn't something you did. So I was the closest thing to having a master's in the field and working at a destination marketing organization. And you were like 21, right? I, I was young. I was 22 or 23 in there. <laughs> and it just wound up being a gig that I did on the side forever. What was funny was my very first class, Nova at that time was designed for um, adults who had been in the industry for a long time, but had not had the time to complete their bachelors. So they did a campaign to hotel GMs across South Florida, and they met once a week for classes at a hotel. So my first class, I walk into the room, I'm like 23, 22, whatever the heck I was, and they were all hotel GMs there. So I had the academic credential of having the master's credits. They had all the business experience and it wound up we all became friends. So we learned from each other. So after that, it was just something I did forever. So what made you decide though that you were like, okay, I'm done being a GM, time to full-time be a professor? Well, I was managing in 2000, a Crown Plaza on iDrive 
And it was a very large hotel. And it later was sold almost immediately, a year or two into operation, to be broken out into vacation ownership. But we won the IHG, the Intercontinental Hotels Group, uh, Newcomer of the Year Award, Torchbearer of the Year. And I had reached out to Harris Rosen because he was the superstar, amazing hotel magnate in Orlando to kind of see if I could ever meet him, learn from him. One of my management company bosses had been his night auditor back in the 70s. So I got a call from the dean at the University of Central Florida who said, hey, we're hiring for a lodging professor. Would you ever consider coming back to do your doctorate and go in academia full time? So I guess he had talked to Harris and they said, oh, he's in the market. He's a good GM. And so I went and met them. And it's very um, unique, different to get hired in academia on a tenure track line with a master's. But my my agreement and contract was that I had to finish the doctorate within three years. Um, so I said, let me think a little bit. I was on to my next project, which was a Disney Good Neighbor Hotel. So still in Orlando, still doing great things. And I said, you know what? What the heck? But it was probably a third of my salary to go into academia. I also felt like this will be a goal for me. I wanted to graduate with my doctorate before I turned 40. And I finished on May 5th, 2005. And I turned 40 on June 26th. So the month before. So that was one of my goals. I don't know why. It was just one of those goals. Uh, so a lot of different reasons, I guess. That is very interesting. Well, now we're going to get serious. <laughs> Enrollment in hospitality degree programs has declined over the last few years. If I had to guess, I would attribute it at least in part to the fact that schools are asking students in a lot of cases to take on thousands, maybe a hundred thousand dollars in loan debt. And we as the industry want them to start in the hotel business at 10 or $15 an hour. What am I missing? Is there Are there other reasons? Am I not getting it right? Like, What do you think the situation is? What's causing the decline in enrollment? Oh my goodness. There's so many, uh, so much time I could talk about this. Um, <laughs> back in 05, my dissertation was specifically on, well, it was called lodging managers. So it could be resort, select service, any type of lodging, and the value they placed on a college degree in hospitality. Did they value the hospitality major more than others? Did it differ between male and female GMs? Did it differ between level of hotel? In the end, there was no difference among uh, between gender. There was no difference among brand. There was no difference among size of hotel, type of hotel, anything. But all also agreed that the degree doesn't shouldn't make you get more money to start. So that entrenched thinking that we are kind of an apprenticeship industry is one reason that the light was brightly shine on hospitality during the pandemic. And so people said, you know what? I don't have to spend five years getting uh, dealing with difficult guests and working my way up and working weekends and nights. I'm going to try this career where I could work from home. I'm going to try that career where maybe a certificate will get me a job that starts at $35,000 and I don't have to borrow all the money for school. So that's one issue. Our industry has always been 
prove yourself, start at the bottom. That's how you move up. And that doesn't float well with today's younger generation. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to do it. They don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's necessary. So there's a big thing. I think the programs also need to become more business oriented so that the graduates are versatile. I have graduates who, for example, have titles like relationship manager at Bank of America, or they're on a pathway to be a store manager at Target. It's retail still related. They work in grocery stores, whether it's Wegmans or Publix on a pathway to general manager. It's still hospitality skills. So we need to do a better job showcasing what we teach because our skill set is invaluable no matter what they go into. Uh, one of my, some of my top graduates tickle me with their career paths because one is now a chief human resources officer for a law firm of three or 4,000 employees. Oh, wow. The reason, yeah, the reason she moved up from the HR world in hospitality law firm, they liked her people skills. Another one manages and now owns a chain of veterinary practices. The reason that he became successful was his ability to serve the patients, human and animal. <laughs> and so his hospitality skill set is what took him far in the veterinarian business. So we've never showcased the broader things you can do with a hospitality degree. And I think if we do that, that'll also help in enrollments. Okay, so I'm going to pose what may sound a little contrarian of a set of questions for you. If that's the case, should we even be encouraging people to get hospitality degrees. Here's why I'm asking this. My hunch is that whoever the person is that's in college today, right now, or you know, three years from now, is going to have a job in 10 or 15 years that you and I have never heard of before and that doesn't exist yet. Should higher education stop being about job training and be about something else. Maybe it's about people skills or maybe it's about thinking skills or I'm not exactly sure even how to articulate the types of skills that I mean, but maybe it's less about check this checklist and more about here's how to do things we can't even conceive of yet. Does that make any sense at all? Sure, it does. You know, and another issue with our enrollments is that parents have a tendency when their children are going to study in college to also downplay hospitality as something you need to pay for for a degree because many of them have come up through the ranks. So your question, again, ties into my thinking of a future curriculum that's very practical, business skills, soft skill oriented, communications, critical thinking the written communications as well as the presentation skills and basic analytical skills, use of Excel, use of spreadsheets, understanding key performance indicators and what KPIs are going to come your way. So more broader thinking, which is why I think hospitality should be blended into a general management degree. But you'll find this, um, I don't know, most people find it surprising with all the thousands of people we've had in the certificate, many of them have reached out to me for my one-on-one -on -one advice because I clearly tell everybody that I know 
I grew up in a family on uh, federal aid. My dad was medically disabled. I was first in college. I didn't know what a college degree meant. And they asked me, was it worth it? Was it not? I, I think it's something I will never trade for anything else because it taught me communication skills and effective leadership skills and the ability to work with diverse people from everywhere. So I found it worthwhile for that. Now, having said that, I only borrowed $6,000 for my bachelor's because I had a lot of grants and financial aid. So would I borrow 50,000 today for a bachelor's? Probably not. I would start by thinking, what do I think I wanna work in? What can I do entry level in that field? Let me get in and see what people are doing there. And the movement right now is for micro-credentialing so see how far I can go with some certificates or certifications or proof of passing a basic exam and test the waters a little bit. I encourage all of my MBAs, they kind of laugh at me and, and my undergrads. I'm like, what's your mad rush? When I grew up, you go to school for four years because the degree is going to guarantee you a better job and a better place. That's not the guarantee anymore. So if you have a family, if you have a girlfriend, if you have a boyfriend, if you have an ex and you're in the midst of finding yourself, whatever it is, take your time, take one or two classes at a time that you can afford, afford, don't bury yourself in debt. And if the company says, we really want you to finish your degree, then go for it. If not, don't bother. Plus, you know, don't do it for a company, do it for you. And invite the company to join you in that journey then and help Absolutely. you pay for it. Help you pay for it. <laughs> Look at my pathway. I didn't like law school. I immediately moved into the master's within a matter of months because I would I felt like, oh my God, without school, there's no future. There's no future. That's how I grew up. It was the first time in college. College was the way to success. Those days are gone. You can find information everywhere now, and not every job will need the skills in a traditional degree. But having said that, I would still encourage anyone who wants to go to school to do it because it's more than the content knowledge. It's the time management skills you build. It's the interaction with people from all over the world. It's the ability to persuasively um, converse with others to get your points across, which I needed as a GM. It's, it helped me have empathy to listen to my stakeholders. And all those things I learned through the process of higher education. You have mentioned something that I really want to make sure we don't forget to talk about, which is the idea of micro-credentialing. So for our listeners, this is something like getting a certificate in a particular area of expertise. So for example, when I was a wee lass and a director of sales and marketing, I sold to... And I worked in Washington, DC. I sold to the association market. Many of those meeting planners had a credential called uh, a CMP, a certified meeting planner. And so in order to better bond with those customers, it was a good idea for all of us to have CMPs as well. So I got my CMP. It was incredibly difficult. I could not believe how hard it was. Um, but that's an example of a micro-credential. And you have really put your money where your mouth is with micro-credentials. I think you have like 20 of them. So in addition to your myriad degrees, what do you think are some of the most valuable or even the most interesting of the certificates that you've pursued? You know, what's funny is um, 
there are certificates and then there's certifications. So people often get them confused. And we have a massive one at FAU. So ours is an executive education certificate. And that does you don't put those letters after your name. But the two that I find most valuable uh-huh. in the business are the, uh, the CMP. They changed it a few years ago. Certified meeting professional, same rigor, same everything. But now they have an advanced one for people with 10 or more years of planning experience called the Certified Meeting Manager, the CMM. And you actually have to write almost the equivalent of like a 30 or 40 page term paper. It's really incredible. And back in time, the CHA, the Certified Hotel Administrator, was the one that I felt was the most difficult, the most uh, professional because it had so much rigor and content. And that one, you had to be a general manager for of a hotel for a certain amount of time. One of my students said it best. They're like, what are all those letters under your name or did your cat run over your keyboard? <laughs> and, and that just cracked me up. And the reason I do them is, I, I you know, the the doctrine instilled in me a, life, a desire for lifelong learning. It's not that they're super pleasant or easy. They all take a few days or a few a week or a couple of weeks. Some of them are really intense. I do them because I want to stay current with what different pieces of the industry are doing and where my students might wind up. So I did one, It's uh, I think it's called Certified in Hospitality Business Acumen. And it's just so you know the language, the terminology of hospitality. Then I did uh, one in digital marketing because a lot of my students want to go into digital marketing. I don't have a marketing bachelor's or master's or doctorate, but I'm placing them in those roles. So I want to find out what those roles are about. I just did a revenue management one. And my next one this year is called the CHEX, the Certified Hospitality Expert. And it says something, it's equivalent of a mini MBA. So I'm really excited for that one. But I do them because I want to identify with niche areas where my students would go. I don't do them for a normal reason. Mm -hmm. But if you're working in the business, you should do them in the zone you're in. This sounds like a good time to take a break. When we come back, Peter and I are going to talk about why hospitality employment data is misleading and why you should never tell college students you started as a dishwasher. Be right back. I'm talking to Stephanie Smith from Cogwheel Marketing about Cogwheel Analytics, her company's new business intelligence tool. Can you give us a use case of how your customers are using Cogwheel Analytics right now? A lot of us in digital marketing, we look at our channel mix. How much revenue is coming in through our website? How much money is coming through the OTAs? How much is coming through GDS, voice, and then from the hotel sales efforts? So you can easily, with our dashboard, be able to look at the trends over the last 12 months and year over year and very easily see how your OTA demand shifts in certain season, it's a fairly easy picture to be able to identify those trends and then plan against that when you're looking at your strategies three, six, nine months down the road. What's the typical size of the company that can best benefit from Cogwheel Analytics? The platform is made for enterprise level. It's designed for companies that have 20 or more hotels in their portfolio. If you happen to oversee 20, 50, 100 hotels, you can buy where your quote-unquote problem children are and then spend time digging deeper into those individual hotels. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from 
each and every episode of Top Floor with a couple of very practical, tangible tips that they can try in their businesses, their lives, or in this case, their academic careers. How do you think, Peter, the hospitality industry is being misled by hiring data right now? What I mean by this is what is happening with turnover and layoffs that we need to pay attention to in addition to the employment numbers? No, that's that's a question that's going to irritate some of my good friends. Um, I ha- I have a few recruiter friends who they're sunshine and roses lately because every every job report the hospitality numbers keep growing and growing, and we're back to where almost where we were pre pandemic. But what no one is talking about is the horrible increase in turnover. Um, hospitality and tourism is known for high turnover because a lot of people use our positions on the way to something else. So it's not uncommon to be a server part-time while you have a full-time job elsewhere or to, you know, work night audit while you're going to classes. Those are all common things. So we historically have a rather high turnover rate anyway. But the post-pandemic turnover rate uh, is one area I think we need more research I think we knee-jerk react to uh, instantly increase our wages, and we've attract people who may not have come in because they love hospitality. They just saw the opportunity. They get in for a little bit, and then the 24-7 demanding guest kind of thing shocks them, and they leave sooner than later. So I think What's misleading is that we keep adding positions back, everything's hunky-dory, we're paying better than ever, but our pipeline is lower than it's ever been at the college level because of the shrink in enrollments, and our turnover is probably higher than a normal period pre-pandemic. And what I mean normal, without a recession, without a cycle. So I think somebody needs to look at that and really see, because I can tell you prior to the pandemic, we posted jobs on our listserv for about five or 600 companies. We now have about 1300. And the number of jobs that repeat, you'll see it posted. And then four months later, it's posted again. And then four months later, it's posted again. And we update our database. And even the HR directors and the GM, there's not a week that goes by that I'm not updating 15 or 20 every week, every week. The bounce back, the bounce back. So it's happening at the hourly level, at the middle manager, and at the senior manager. And, you know, we will get to whatever a new state of balance is, whatever that is. But I think some of the data is just too shiny that we're almost back to full employment. But that really doesn't mean much on, on its own. Interesting. You mentioned research. What do you think is being over-researched by academics right now? And what do you think is being under-researched? I guess turnover is one of the things that you think is being under-researched. Yeah, I think we need to find the current reason for lack of interest in hospitality, the current reasons for higher than even normally high turnover. That's an area I say we need some focus on. But you know, Not so much as over under research as much as the academy needs to uh, talk the language of the practitioners. 
There's not a week that goes by that I'm not reading something on artificial intelligence and the infusion of technology as we struggle with labor. I think there's a heightened research moment where we're trying to find out what we can do with technology to reduce a full-time equivalent role in the hotel and still give the same level of service, but make sure that the guest wants that technology instead of a human. That's an area that's being kind of over-researched, but it's an okay area to over-research right now because it's important. Um, But I would say the disconnect is always between getting the word that we need to to practitioners. I try to write for the trade press. I try to do podcasts. I try to get the the normal GM's attention for the two minutes they can spare in a day because otherwise you're not going to get on their radar. This may be an uncool question to ask, but I am not an academic, but I am highly nerdy and I have all of these research projects and studies that I want to do. And so over time, I've reached out to different people like, hey, let's do this project or let's do this research or let's do this study. And I tend to get blown off. Maybe that's because it's just not a good idea. But do you think that academics are less likely to partner with somebody in the industry because it feels like um, something that's like for commercial gain or personal gain, something like that? It's not so much that it's for personal gain or commercial. It's more as to the requirements for the data set and how it's collected to be able to be published in a high quality journal. So there's a lot of surveys that we could do on Qualtrics and this thing to get a temperament, but they wouldn't lead to a theoretical underpinning that go to a high academic journal. So a lot of the academics have to get tenure or remain tenured or get promoted by publishing in top theory-based journals. So that's why a lot of the surveys I suggest, which are based on my GM hat, are often like, well, that's great for a convenient sample just for information, but we can't really shake any theories out of it. And I'm like, I don't really care. I'd like to get the graphics. I just want to know. know. Yeah. 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 I yeah. And that's that's why my my dissertation had enough statistics at a level in it to get published, but it was still practitioner related because what I took away is everybody in lodging would expect more from someone who graduates with a hospitality major, but nobody was willing to pay a premium. And that was insulting to me to learn and insulting as a student because the the mentality is still, well, you start as a dishwasher or front desk agent or a server or valet parking, and you prove yourself and we'll move you right away. Now, true, we're moving people faster and further than ever before because we're short-staffed. But I want to know there's some value to the four years and headache and 40,000 I put into my degree. Of course. Um, Yeah. I have a little little tidbit for you on that. Talking, going back to my dishwasher. I try not to say that as my first job anymore because the the students have very quizzical looks. And about two semesters ago, one of them raised her hand and said, uh, did you have bad grades in high school? Is that why you took that job? And it really kind of floored me. But the thinking is, why would you do that when you don't even want to wash dishes at home? We have a dishwasher. We have a button to push. So I have to put myself 
in the shoes of someone who's coming up through the ranks. And I said, no, I just wanted some money. It paid well. And it was hours that I could work within high school. But I was kind of really surprised by the question. And a lot of general managers and vice presidents will come speak to students and they tell, well, I started at the front desk and I worked my 50 hours. That does not resonate with today's generation at all. They don't want to hear that. Why do you think that is? Because they're like, I'm getting my degree. I should be able to skip the line and go straight to AGM. Or they've been told that all their lives. Like, Can you say more about that? I wish I had the magical answer, but there is definitely a disconnect because I see the rolled eyes and I get the evaluations from students and it's not a one-off, it's over 10 years. So I tell them to focus about what they do in their job, what their job entails, and now I'm focused on getting younger people into the classroom. By younger, I mean four to seven years after their bachelor's, regardless of their chronological age. So they can say the bachelor's got me here, it opened doors for me here, and this is what I did then, and this is what I do now. But they don't want to hear the, oh, I walked to school in the snow with no shoes. They don't want to hear anything about it. Because tech, technology imparts um, instant information. I probably was the same way, but I don't remember being the same way. And again, I don't have any internet videos to prove it. So, <laughs> exactly. so the, the technology was different. I mean, if you see people doing great things and they don't look much older than you, why on earth would you think you have to wait for it? So it's it's a confounding issue for educators. But I I really have learned not to have guest speakers go through their whole life because they will tune out. And I had to change what I say about what I do and what I did and how I got to places. I I won't emphasize that one of the guest speakers I had from Hyatt did a very good job saying that in her early days, she's been there 25 years. In her early days, it was a badge of honor to have as many PTO days as you had without ever using them. So paid time off was just there, but you never used it. You get paid off at the end of the year. And how many doubles you could work was like a badge of honor. She said now her badge of honor is showing how she can manage a cluster of hotels better than everybody else and work 40 hours a week. So that kind of put it together. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's a nice way to draw that contrast. And it's a contrast Mm -hmm. that needs to be drawn more often. Well, we have reached the fortune telling portion of our program. So I have a very controversial question to ask you. I'm sure you're going to love answering this. What is a prediction you have about the future of the relationship between Disney and the state of Florida? Oh, wow. I I just got asked for a quote in Bloomberg on this, and I must sound so middle of the road because I grew up here. So, uh, and I went to the grand opening day of Magic Kingdom. So I have been entrenched and I've lived in Orlando on and off for a long time. So I've been entrenched in the politics of the Reedy Creek District and the preferential treatment Disney has for many years. But without Disney, I don't think we'd have the tourism economic engine that we have today, without a doubt, in Florida. So I definitely see both sides. Um, There's a book that I suggest that you and your listeners read called Married to the Mouse. It's from 2001 or 2002. I wish the author would do an updated one now. 
But his story of the 60s through the 70s, through the 80s, through the 90s, these arguments have happened time and time again, but they haven't really been as out there to the world, again, because of the technology. You had to wait to read the newspaper or you had to watch the 6 or 11 p.m. news. Now it's 24-7 the battle, but the rationale behind the battle has been there for decades. And it comes up periodically when Disney is leaning one way to the private benefits versus Orange and Osceola County for the public benefits. Um, so for me, I think they will need to come to a solution. Um, if I were to predict, uh, if, if Ron DeSantis becomes president, I think Disney will really have an issue. Um, if his tenure ends at governor and he stays involved behind the scenes, Disney has enough power to fight for another year or two. But I really see it could go either way. And do they have preferential treatment as an Orlando citizen? Um, in the late, late 80s, early 90s, the county commission voted three to two. They almost moved forward to sue against the contract for Rita Creek at that point. It only lost by one vote. Three to two. So anyone who's lived there will know this story. But to the outside world, it's just a brand new, oh my God, we're picking on Mickey Mouse. <laughs> it's a crazy situation it is, all it is. the way around. What is next for you and what is next for your program at FAU? Well, you know, I was very uh, blessed, I suppose, to have the love during the pandemic by creating a certificate. I mean, I wanted to do something for workers that were going to be out of work because I know we're all a touch ADHD. We love our hotels. We're thriving on chaos. And all of a sudden, everything went quiet. So because of that, I've had the ability to meet people from all over the world now. I've had so many people do their degrees wherever they live, tell me about their stories of getting hired back or how they wound up in real estate and what they like now, what they don't like. It's been fascinating. So at FAU, I just want to continue the momentum. I wanted to offer this. I want to offer an updated version of the certificate every two years with new content. It's very challenging because it's like my side job. And I want to ask the industry every two years, what are the topics they want to hear about? So we reach out and we get anecdotal comments and feedback. And so we're getting ready for the 24-25 run and we'll build that this fall. But I just love giving people the opportunity to learn. And when they send me their pictures of their promotions and their kids and, you know, I had some high schoolers. I even had like a 15-year-old who was, said, I might want to work in hospitality, took the certificate. Well, she emailed me the other day that she just got accepted to college. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're already 17 and a half. And it's just fascinating. So I just want to do what we do, which is bring lifelong learning, as I call it, to the world. I don't care if it's a certificate, a degree, a bachelor's, a longer certificate, just lifelong education, because this business is fantastic. And my goal is to just get the word out there. You know, yes, the car rental business or the attractions business or this little piece of it might not be for you, but I can be almost 100% certain there is a job somewhere in tourism and hospitality that matches you. You could be a journalist. You can be an attorney. Not for me, but you can do it. You know, <laughs> I totally agree with you. Okay, folks, before we tell Peter goodbye, we are going to 
head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Peter, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? Oh my goodness, there's so many. And some of them are a little too racy for a podcast, but <laughs> one of my Never. one of my one of my favorites was um, my first day taking over a hotel that was having issues. And as I was arriving, um, I saw people running down a hill. The hotel was kind of on a really nice hill next to the highway, kind of high up. And I saw something flash by, and then I saw people running. And then as I was parking, the police came. And somebody had stolen the safe out of the controller's office on wheels and was rolling it down the hill to get it into a van. And I just remember that was my first minute working at the hotel. (laughs) And And it went rolling by and the police were there. I don't know what the criminal thought that he would do with it once he got it because it was still he couldn't open it it was just in a case on wheels what in the world (laughs) yeah i forgot you had a loading dock question but that one i always remember vividly there's so many you can't work in our business without fun stories absolutely not peter ricci thank you so much for being here I know our listeners got some great ideas, great things to think about. And I really appreciate you riding with us to the top floor. That's so awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And anybody can reach out anytime. Find me on LinkedIn, email me at FAU. I'd love to chat. I am wrapping up this interview within an interview with Stephanie Smith, CEO of Cogwheel Marketing. Stephanie, I want to know what your customers are saying. How are they reacting to Cogwheel Analytics? The users in our platform tend to be people that are already doing digital marketing, but also people that are in the sales and revenue management field that want to take a full commercial strategy approach. The feedback is, what a time saver. We have management companies that we've supported on the agency side that we're spending up to one week out of the month just doing ownership reports. So as painful as that is, how can we ease the pressure for them on a report side? Number two, it's speed of getting the data. We've built best in class with our servers so that we're pulling large amounts of data in a very small amount of time. Where we want to go is helping be that star report and that benchmark for the industry. So once we're aggregating larger sets of data that we can really establish the best practices on the branded hotel side, to be able to say, this is what the expectations are and be able to say, is this good, bad, a total scorecard for your total online presence. I love that. So you're going to have data at such scale that you can truly set some benchmarks for hotel properties. Exactly, Susan. Took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) What's the best way for someone who's interested to get a demo of Cogwheel Analytics? We certainly invite anybody that's coming to Toronto this summer for the HSMAI and high-tech conferences. We will have a booth at high-tech. So we welcome anyone to come by and demo either Cogwell Analytics or talk to us about agency services. Otherwise, feel free to visit our website at cogwellmarketing.com and we can walk you through what the visualizations look like. To learn more about Stephanie Smith and her company, be sure to go back to episode 19 and listen to it from start to finish. 
Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 90. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 